My name is Mark Mamagonian, and I'm the Director of Academic Affairs of the National Association for Armenian Studies and Research, Nasser, and I'm speaking today with Jennifer Dixon. Jennifer is Assistant Professor in the Department of Political Science at Villanova University. Today we will be discussing Jennifer's first book, Dark Pasts, Changing the State's Story in Turkey and Japan, published in 2018 by Cornell University Press. Dark Pasts argues that official narratives of dark pasts are shaped by interactions between political forces at the domestic and international levels, and the book analyzes the trajectories over the past 60 years of Turkey's narrative of the Armenian Genocide and Japan's narrative of the Nanjing Massacre, and how these narratives have been constructed and how they have changed or have not changed over time. Jennifer, thanks for speaking with us today. Thanks, Mark. Uh, I'm really happy to be doing this interview with you. I appreciate that you've taken the time to read my book and to prepare these questions and to do this interview. And I'm really pleased that the Society for Armenian Studies has invited me to contribute to the podcast series. Great. We're glad to have the opportunity. Um, so let's just jump right in here and talk about the book. The right. title of the book, of course, is Dark Pasts. Uh, almost every nation or state has a dark past of one kind or another. What is it about Turkey and Japan that was particularly distinctive or illustrative, and uh, what do you feel is brought out by engaging in a comparison between the two? That's a great question. The I completely agree that almost every nation or state has a dark past, and I, in the introductory chapter, I talk about that, and I mentioned the United States having its own dark pasts, plural, I would say. Um, I think the reasons why I chose Turkey and Japan to compare and analyze in my book, there are really three core reasons. So one is that typically when people study the politics of the past, the case that's most frequently studied is Germany and, and its processes of uh, acknowledging and its uh, acts that have attempted to express uh, contrition and, and to, in some ways, uh, uh, Pay, pay rep different ways, pay reparations and restitution for the Holocaust. Um, but the problem with the German case is that it's it's really an outlier. Um, the extent of acknowledgement and the extent of contrition to which Germany has over time come or arrived um, is is unusual among states that have dark pasts. So really is unusual among the vast majority of states. Um, it's much more common for states to relativize, rationalize, myth-make, um, deny, silence, dark pasts. Uh, so Turkey and Japan are, I would say, more representative of the, the full uh, set of states with dark pasts. Uh, so that was one reason. The second reason is that um, they're, both, they're both relatively sticky cases in the sense that both states have been, states and both states' narratives have been relatively resistant to change. So in methodological terms, that makes them hard cases for studying change because they've been resistant to change. And then in terms of the comparison itself, um, I chose the two cases. So I started out uh, with an interest in, in Turkey and Turkish politics and studying the Armenian genocide. And so then I, I wanted to um, have a comparative project. And so I set about trying to figure out um, what would be the 
the best comparison with Turkey and, and, and its narrative of the Armenian genocide. And so I selected Japan because um, both cases share some key structural similarities and they both start from a position, both narratives start from a position of um, silencing and denial. And yet over time, um, Japan's narrative has, um, the, the trajectories of the two narratives narratives have diverged somewhat significantly. So Japan's narrative, while both narratives have changed over time, Japan's narrative has changed to a greater extent. So it's come to um, acknowledge more about um, the event and has come to apologize uh, in limited ways for the event. Um, so, so this kind of sets up um, uh, gives me leverage to both compare over time across the two cases, changes over the uh, between the two cases, but then I also um, have change over time within each case. So I was able to compare within each case um, these changes over time to figure out what had changed that would account for the changes that I saw in the narratives. Mm -hmm. So the so the cases are uh, comparable without being uh, identical, of course. Yeah, and what, what's useful about having them have these broad structural similarities, so both are um, democracies, although the degree of democracy um, across the two cases varies somewhat, um, and I talk about that somewhat in the book. Um, both were um, kind of on the side of the West during the Cold War, and so that, that kind of their position internationally is similar. Both are strong allies of the United States, um, and yet despite these similarities, you got this divergence. And so it's sort of a, a, a little bit puzzling, right? If you've got these kind of structural similarities, why do you have a greater degree of change in Japan than in Turkey? Mm -hmm. Well, you write in your book that, uh, that, that there's a focus. You focus on official memories, as you put it, right. and then the interactions between structures and agents in shaping states' narratives. In, in these two cases, what structures and agents in particular come into play? Yeah, so that's one of the core lenses that I emphasize in the kind of setup for the book, and then I carry through the analysis of the book is the focus, the dual focus on structures and agents. And I emphasize that because in the scholarship on the politics of memory, there tends to be a focus on either structures or on agents. So I tried to have an, an integrated approach that looked at both of them. And um, in terms of structures, I emphasize uh, structures of meaning. And there, in particular, I emphasize um, the narratives themselves are structures of meaning, and then also um, international normative expectations is an important structure of meaning. And in both cases, uh, these structures of meaning uh, have functioned as um, either constraints on change or as factors that have um, pushed for change. Um, uh, in terms of the official narratives as constraints on change, I mean, that's perhaps a counterintuitive statement to say that in studying narratives, I also find the narratives influence the narratives. Um, but what I found is that is that the nature of change in what the state says about a dark past is um, is slow, incremental, and usually involves layering. So that it's rare that a state, and I don't find 
this really to be the case in either of the two cases that I study in my book. For It's rare or extremely rare for a state to uh, one day just decide to construct a radically different narrative that mm. diverges fundamentally from everything it's ever said or not said about a dark past. Um, what's much more common is for... Um, for threads of a narrative to continue over time. And when there is change in the narrative, for those changes to be either layered on top or added to that which was previously said, or for um, particular strands of the narrative to be subtly tweaked. So for instance, in Turkey's narrative, um, one aspect of the narrative that's been tweaked over time is, is there's been this continuing argument since the early 1980s when Turkey's narrative shifted from a narrative of um, overwhelming silence and um, denial when forced to say something to a narrative that, that, that had a lot to say but was, was, was uh, uh, basically myth-making, you know, kind of a, a narrative that didn't bear relationship to empirical facts. Um, and from the 80s to today, I find that there's three, point, three major points of change, or, or two subsequent points of change, three if we include the one in 1981. Um, and one thread of the narrative has been talking about um, historians, how historians um, need to look into the past. And that's been a continuing part of the state's narrative over the entire period from the early 80s to today, but the, but but um, officials have subtly shifted the way they've characterized it. So initially it was um, that historians hadn't looked into the past and they needed to look into the past. And until they did so, we couldn't say that this was a genocide. Um, whereas today what's said is not that historians haven't looked into the past, but that historians need to look into all of the materials. Um, because obviously many historians, including many Turkish historians, have looked into the Armenian genocide and have written about it um, and have written lots about the fact that it was a genocide. Um, so the argument that historians haven't looked into the past is no longer sustainable. So it's shifted um, to say basically that, that, well, there's not a consensus and that um, all all of the data needs to be look at, looked into. So it's kind of a, a subtle shift, but it's an important shift. Um, but it, it illustrates this, this layering. Um, similarly, Turkish officials have argued over time um, that what happened wasn't genocide. But the arguments they've made for why it wasn't genocide in the state's narrative have also shifted subtly. So there's this continuity at the core of it's not genocide, but the argumentation have sh has shifted subtly. So at first in the 80s, the argumentation was it's not genocide because it's not like the Holocaust. Um, but as that was no longer um, a dominant argument in a document do dominant argument in genocide studies, um, the the official the Turkey's narrative shifted to say no longer um, to start to say it's not genocide because it doesn't fit fully the UN Convention on the Prevention and Punishment of Genocide's um, definition of genocide, which of course is not true, but um, but that's what the official arg um, narrative says. So it's again like a, a subtle shift in the argumentation with continuity at the core. Um, so, so, so yeah, something ahead. that I've noticed is that uh, even when it the narrative changes, as yeah. you've just given an example, the older uh, argument doesn't necessarily disappear. It exactly. maybe is just uh, directed towards a different audience, or it's incorporated into the larger argument, or it's just downplayed for a period of time. Because, of course, you will still encounter the argument that 
the case of the Armenians is not a genocide because it isn't identical to the Holocaust. It's just that that's not necessarily the lead argument anymore, maybe. Yeah, and, and sometimes there's different communications to different audiences. So that's still a part of the communication to domestic audiences in Turkey, but not a part of the communication, a, a, not a central part of the communication internationally, um, mm -hmm. because that's not as resonant with, with current understandings of genocide, at least among scholars of genocide. Um, so the, the other structure I, I emphasize is, is structures of power. So the um, distribution of power internationally, um, in particular, the influence of Cold War alliances, um, the relative power of the perpetrator states, so Turkey and Japan, vis-a-vis um, -vis the relevant victim states, so Armenia and uh, China uh, and a bunch of other Asian countries. Um, and then lastly, uh, the domestic political regime is another structure of power. So all these structures of power are relatively constant and yet can shift. And so the uh, when they do shift, that can destabilize the narrative because it kind of is moving the structure within which the narrative exists or is sustained. Um, so and then in terms of, the, oh, go mm -hmm. ahead. No, go no, ahead. no, please. Oh, I was just uh, going to turn to the agents part, but if you want to say something about power, we can. Well, I was just going to say that you talk about how uh, different forms of power uh, bring about different uh, kinds of change. You say that international pressure yeah. uh, determines the likelihood of change in an official narrative, while domestic considerations usually determine the content of, yeah. of the change. Uh, can you talk a little bit about how that works and, and why that seems to work that way? Sure. Um, so uh, across both cases, I identified several points of change and then periods of continuity in the content of the narratives. And so my, my overriding question was, well, when and why do states change their narratives of dark, dark pasts. And I found that uh, international pressures, so either pressures by victim states, pressure by third party states, or pressure by um, non-state transnational actors, i.e. actors outside the states that I'm, whose narratives I'm studying, um, that, that uh, pressures from these different categories of actors uh, were more likely to trigger change than, um, than pressures emerging from within the domestic sphere. I should emphasize that it is not the case that pressures emerging from within the domestic sphere, either from um, other uh, political actors who are not in power or from activists or from scholars, those can sometimes trigger change, but it's much less likely to trigger change than international pressure, I found. Um, so, so I argue that international pressure is uh, likelier to trigger change or likeliest to trigger change, but that domestic political considerations, and I enumerate four key domestic political considerations, are what shapes typically the timing and the direction and the substance of change in the state's narrative. And uh, I, I know you mentioned before that, that Germany yeah. is in many ways an outlier. Yeah. Uh, is it an outlier in this uh, paradigm as well? Uh, or, or, or did Germany's 
uh, change uh, or it's it's addressing it past were, were foreign pressure and domestic pressure both part of the scenario there as well or did it function differently? Yeah, so I haven't studied Germany as extensively as I've studied Japan and Turkey's narratives, but um, international pressure, international politics, and domestic pressures and politics are both part of the story of understanding um, changes over time in uh, Germany's narrative of the Holocaust. So uh, my sense from reading, uh, reading the secondary literature is that my argument uh, is is helps understand uh, Germany's narrative as well and change over time in Germany's narrative. So it, it's pretty clear from your comments and from mm. very clear from the book that that mm. Japan, uh, although maybe not uh, a, a perfect model by any mm. means, has has fur further moved towards acknowledgement and contrition than has uh, the Republic of Turkey. Can can you then talk about? What are the factors that have uh, affected these rather different trajectories? Sure. So, uh, so I make this broad argument that international pressure is more likely uh, to lead to change, but domestic considerations shape the content of change. And so, the key elements of my argument uh, there's there's differences in each of the key elements of my narrative of my argument. Uh, between the two cases. So I'll just walk through the elements of the narrative and, and what the differences are. Yeah. So with regard to international pressure, so there's um, more, there's much more pressure from victim states for a much longer period of time on Japan than on Turkey. So for one, Japan faced more victim states. So, um, so I study primarily Japan's narrative of the Nanjing massacre, but um, official statements about the Nanjing massacre are always embedded within statements about the broader, uh, the broader Second Sino-Japanese War. So, um, and then of course, sometimes they're also embedded within broader statements about um, the Pacific War. So. The, the most relevant victim state is obviously China, but there's also Taiwan and Korea and the Philippines and uh, several other states. So the fact that there were more victim states that Japan faced uh, just increased numerically the amount of calls for Japan to change what it said, calls for Japan to express contrition, greater contrition. Um, than Turkey has faced. In particular, um, Turkey has, you know, there's one formal victim state, state which is Armenia, um, and Armenia wasn't an independent state for most of the post-World War II period, right? It's only been an independent state for a few decades. Uh, so um, that's one big difference. Uh, the other big difference is the relative power between the relevant victim states. So um, China in particular, over time, its its power has grown. And as China's power has grown uh, relative to Japan's and more generally relative to other states, uh, its dissatisfaction with uh, Japan's narrative has become more costly for Japan and in the perception of Japanese officials. Whereas Armenia has been quite a, you know, first of all, it wasn't a state, an independent state. And then since it's been 
an independent state, it's been an extremely weak state. So that relative weakness has meant that, um, you know, even the zero diplomatic relations that Turkey has with the Republic of Armenia, uh, while it ha that has been costly in economic and diplomatic terms, um, the, the relative cost is much lower than the relative cost um, for Japan vis-a-vis -vis China of, um, of disagreement over its narrative. Um, so that's one big difference across the two cases. The second big difference is that there's been uh, much more and much longer standing domestic contestation over um, what are called, often referred to as history is issues in Japan than has been the case in Turkey over the Armenian genocide or what's often referred to as the Armenian question. Um, and this has to do with um, differences in the, in the degree of democracy in the two countries. Um, so, so Japan, uh, you know, has been a more functioning um, democracy than Turkey he has for the since the end of World War II. And so domestic activism um, around sensitive issues has been uh, more possible in Japan than in Turkey. Uh, and so there's been activism and contestation around Japan's uh, acknowledgement of um, war crimes and atrocities since the 1950s, the early 1950s in Japan. Whereas, you know, in Turkey, uh, activism that pushed for greater acknowledgement uh, acknowledgement of and contrition for the Armenian genocide only began to emerge in Turkey in, in the early 90s and then it was really scant. So you know that's that's another big difference in terms of kind of domestic you know what what's going on domestically. Um, you talk about the international pressures uh, that are that uh, have been brought, or, or in the case of the Armenian, uh, Armenia and Turkey, not really much brought from from the victim states. But what right. other kinds of international pressures uh, have have uh, influenced these cases? Um, of course, That's there was international question. pressure on Turkey before Armenia became independent again in 1991, for example. Right. So, so, so in the case of Turkey, the international pressures that have been most consequential have been. Um, third-party states' uh, recognition of the Armenian genocide. Often these have been legislative recognitions of the Armenian genocide, but not always legislative, sometimes executive. Um, and then also uh, transnational activism, uh, often by diaspora Armenians, but not only by diaspora Armenians. Um, and so these, uh, these have been... Uh, these these have contributed toward the kind of increasing perception of increasing awareness of the Armenian genocide or kind of to use the discourse in Turkey, the Armenian question within Turkey, and then increasing perception of the Armenian genocide internationally, which has created then a disconnect or a problem for Turkish diplomats and Turkish officials uh, when, because it highlights the discrepancy between uh, what is known and said about the Armenian genocide outside Turkey and what Turkish officials and the state of Turkey says about the genocide. And so, so these kind of accumulations of pressure have created, have led Turkish diplomats at key junctures, particularly in the 
early 80s and the early 2000s to decide that they needed to do something to update their narrative and to more effectively defend their narrative um, in the face of uh, increasing international and domestic awareness of the issue and the kind of decreasing uh, perceived legitimacy or validity of, of the state's position. Do you think its uh, efforts to update the narrative and evolve the narrative have been have they been successful uh, over the course of time? Well, so it depends on how we define success. But I would say that um, as Turkey has different things that Turkey has done to update and defend its narrative have uh, at times mitigated pressures on Turkey and calls for Turkey to acknowledge the genocide uh, and apologize for it. So for instance, um, Turkey in the mid 1980s um, announced with a lot of fanfare that it was going to uh, quote unquote open the archives uh, related to um, the events of the genocide. And then several years later, it announced that it was opening the archives um, related to the period of the genocide. Um, and both the announcement that it was going to and then that it did, um, I mean, this one of the big motivations was to reduce um, third party states, particularly the United States, um, in, uh, interest in um, passing these legislative resolutions acknowledging the genocide. Um, and there's some evidence that, that it was successful in kind of um, tamping down on the interest um, in, for instance, the U.S. Congress in, in, in such efforts. Um, more recently, um, Turkish officials have, um, so one of the structures of meaning that I talk about in my book is, is um, international norms. So I talk in particular about uh, understanding of, of what genocide is and how those understandings have shifted subtly over time um, with scholarship and international jurisprudence. And then the other one is, is expectations about um, the value of um, truth-seeking and truth-telling um, and how those expectations have emerged and shifted over time. And um, so whereas in, say, the 50s and 60s, it was considered uh, pretty acceptable internationally and pretty normal internationally for states to kind of to try to uh, brush dark parts of their past under the carpet, so to speak, um, and to try to move forward um, and sort of forget the things that, that, that were desirable for those states to forget. Um, whereas today, that's not considered um, a good thing, um, and it's not really considered uh, what states should be doing. Uh, instead, states are expected to and pressured to um, look into these pasts, to apologize for them, to um, to um, reconcile with harmed parties and groups. Um, and so in, uh, in response to this shifting discourse or in parallel with the shifting discourse, Turkish officials have since the kind of early to mid 2000s um, started to talk about um, the desire to face the truth, to, um, to come to terms with the past, um, and their desire to reconcile with Armenia and their expectation that Armenia will do the same. Um, so this has similarly uh, had the effect of reducing, um, say, EU member states, the EU, par the European Parliament and um, U.S. Congress's uh, interest in um, pressuring Turkey, as has Turkey's 
uh, efforts at rapprochement with Armenia, which obviously died uh, recently, uh, most significantly died recently, but, but really petered out shortly after they uh, culminated in the signing of the protocols. Right. Um, so, you know, those, those, those have been effective from the perspective of what I think Turkish officials' intentions were uh, with regard in making the changes. Um, I can, because the, the, uh, the goal isn't necessarily to convince the world uh, of, of, of their position so much as it's to uh, tamp down, as you say, the, these uh, uprisings of, of sentiment around the world so that they can continue uh, in, in their track. I, I mean, I think the former is also a goal, and I think it depends on the official and the institution, um, you know, which of these goals is, is foremost in mind. Um, but no, I, I didn't mean to insinuate that, that, that Turkish officials don't also want to persuade others, other states, other academics, Turks, that, um, that their narrative is true. I, I mean, I think that's also a goal. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think I think they've been um, somewhat successful in that, although not completely successful. Um, I mean, there's there's evidence. Um, there's a political scientist named Oner uh, Bakiner who um, studied, uh, analyzed uh, media discourse in Turkey around this issue, kind of in the 2000s, and 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 he he argued that the majority of of um, discourse. Uh, accepts that uh, kind of refers to the genocide as like a tragedy um, or a bad thing, uh, but not a genocide. Um, um, and it's quite common. Uh, I think many Turks uh, think that the Armenian genocide wasn't a genocide because it wasn't like the Holocaust. Mm-hmm. So you know, I think I think that argument has been quite persuasive um, because. Who really knows what the UN's definition of genocide is? Very few people. I, I regularly teach courses on genocide, and my students never know the real definition of genocide. I mean, they do when they take the course, obviously. But um, you know, I think most people in the United States and elsewhere don't actually know what, the, what, what a concrete definition of genocide, either the UN definition or a different ge- definition of genocide, is. Um, and they mostly think of genocide in terms of the Holocaust, you know, if they haven't, again, um, read extensively about genocide or, or read particular definitions. So, so given that, I think Turkey's argument, you know, is, is, can be persuasive, right, if someone doesn't actually know what the definition of genocide is. Mm-hmm. Well, it's, I'm sure you've heard, it's sometimes argued that, uh, that Armenians are, uh, a, "Quote unquote," obsessed with the past to an unhealthy degree, and and that uh, Armenians have a genocide fixation. "Quote unquote," uh, again, is that is a hindrance to uh, present and future ad- advancement of Armenians as a whole. But y- your work argues against this kind of neat separation of the past from the present. I think, uh, and, and you talk about the bearing that Turkey's denial of past events has on on its current state and its future development. Can can you talk about this uh, relationship, this uh, intertwined relationship between the past and the present in in Turkey? Sure. 
so so I think you're completely right that that the past is connected to the present. So not all parts of the past are always connected to the present, but um, it is it, it is very much possible that you know, long distant pasts uh, can be very salient in the present, um, either for perpetrator states or victim states or citizens or groups within a perpetrator state or or among a victim community or or for others, right? Um, so I guess I would emphasize a few things or, or make a few points to kind of spell this out. So one is that um, this quote-unquote process of coming to terms with the past, which is a, a, a phrase that actually comes out of Germany's experience of trying to, of struggling with um, the, the dark past of the Holocaust, um, is a process, it's not an outcome. So uh, this this different way of thinking about process of thinking about coming to terms with the past highlights the fact that that there's not a single you know end point that can be reached or should be reached at which point everybody can say yay we're there and mm -hmm. now it's part of the past permanently. Um, so that even in countries uh, in which the past has supposedly been relegated to the past, so to speak, it's come up again. So Spain is a really good example of that, where there was a, there was a pact of silence, so-called, around the, um, the, uh, the civil war and uh, the Franco regime. Uh, and that pact of silence persisted for several decades. And then um, the, these two dual pasts, which are intertwined, erupted again in um, Spanish politics and, and the pact of silence was essentially broken. Um, and these pasts kind of became again a part of the present and about present politics. Um, and I find looking at both cases, but in particular at, at Japan, um, so first of all, I, I have a conception, I develop a conceptual framework in the book for uh, analyzing the content of a state's narrative and then being able to that I use it to assess uh, changes and continuities in the two states' narratives. and the, the Framework doesn't assume a particular progression or endpoint, uh, and in fact, in Japan's narrative, um, there there have been uh, there there's been movement in the direction of greater acknowledgement and contrition. That then subsequently there was movement back um, mm -hmm. away from degrees of acknowledgement and contrition. Um, so that highlights this possibility that there can be really change in either direction. That there's no kind of permanence to a point achieved or reached, so to speak. And then really to speak more directly to your question, um, the past, so scholars of nationalism have long emphasized uh, the ways in which uh, pasts or parts of the past um, can be resources or raw material for the construction of um, nationalism and national identity. Um, and so that, you know, plays, that's certainly the case when we think in particular about um, uh, dark past or, or pasts that relate to mass atrocities, um, which is what I'm talking about in my book. Um, and the past can be both a resource for officials um, and it can also be a battleground in domestic politics. Um, so with regard to the battleground, um, that, that comes out uh, really strongly in my analysis of Japan's narrative over time, um, because one difference between Turkey's and Japan's narrative that is really interesting is that in Japan, 
um, the the narrative uh, has been basically sits on the fault line between um, the left and the right in domestic politics in Japan, so that it uh, the 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 narrative of the Nanjing massacre and Japan's war responsibility and aggression has been uh, relates to other relates to political fault lines on other issues in domestic politics. And so this has been um, an issue that people have, uh, political actors and activists have drawn on uh, in larger, larger struggles over, for instance, the nature and quality of democracy in Japan and over Japan's constitution, et cetera. Um, whereas in Turkey, uh, the difference that I found was that that the 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 Armenian question, so to speak, is really situated or has been situated for most of the post-war period, or really since the actual genocide itself, uh, as an issue that sits between the domestic sphere and the international sphere. So it's been much less, it hasn't aligned with divisions domestically until I would say more recently. Um, yes. Uh, because it was framed as basically kind of an, an us versus them. So there's this this phrase, you know, um, Turks can trust no one but but a Turk. Um, or Turkey is surrounded by um, enemies, um, and Turks need to be um, unified. I mean, these are kind of nationalist tropes. Um, but they they have essentially served to frame the issue as kind of Turks against others outside of Turkey issue. Um, so. So the, the kind of key answer I would say to you is, yes, it's certainly the case that the past is in the present and can be in the present, and it can really function centrally as either a resource um, or as kind of a tool in domestic or a part of domestic political battles and struggles. So your work here in Dark Past, as well as in a number of uh, uh, articles you've published over the past several years, uh, stands as, I mean, among other things, I don't want to limit uh, the in, in my depiction of what the, these are about, but they stand as part of a growing body of literature that has moved beyond uh, arguing with or, or directly trying to counter Turkey's denial uh, and instead engages in an analysis of this denial. And I, so I wanted to mm -hmm. ask you where you think we are in terms of understanding the phenomenon of denial and, and what do you think might be potential directions for future research in this, in this same vein? Um, yeah, so that's a great question. I, I would say I have two, two thoughts or two hopes or interests in terms of the direction of scholarship. So one is, um, I'm a political scientist, and so, and as a political scientist, my my subfield is international relations, and there's a lot of scholarship in international relations about international norms, and that's kind of the body of scholarship to which uh, some of my work has contributed. And um, norms scholars in general have, uh, over time, asked an, a number of questions about norms, but a lot of the questions about norms have been about the effects of norms. And one thing that's been much less studied is uh, the effects of norm violations. So um, in the case um, that I study, uh, so in the case of Turkey, right, um, the original 
violation of the genocide itself. So the the the, the norm against genocide was a nascent, unsp- unwritten norm at the time. Uh, but um, that was a norm violation um, of a weaker norm. Uh, but more recently, in an article that I published, um, I traced the ways in which Turkish officials uh, have shifted um, strands of discourse in relation to emerging and and strengthening norms of truth-telling and truth-seeking, to which I referred a little bit earlier. Um, and the question that norm scholars haven't yet effectively answered is, what are the consequences of norm violations? So what happens when um, states uh, commit torture, when states um, refuse to acknowledge past atrocities, when states um, uh, commit extrajudicial killing? Um, and what are the effects of, of these violations for um, the states? What are the effects for the affected parties? What are the effects for the norms themselves. Um, so that's kind of one interest of mine um, where I think there's a need for more research and for us to better understand what, what, are, what are the effects, right? Because we know that norms are violated actually a lot and when they're violated, it doesn't mean the norm goes away. So does it mean the norm gets eroded, et cetera? Um, so I've tried to kind of fit my work, uh, have my work speak to that uh, somewhat. In relation to scholarship on genocide denial itself, I think similarly, there's been a lot of work cataloging forms and or quote unquote stages of denial. Um, and I think where there could be more research and where I would be particularly interested in having a better understanding are um, to see more systematic analyses of the consequences of denial. So in particular, what are the consequences? So, so I th- mo- most people interested in denial or who are concerned about denial assume it has effects, right? Um, that it might have, so if we're thinking about Turkey's denial of the Armenian genocide, that it that it has effects for um, some Armenians, that it has effects for Turkish citizens, that it has effects for the Turkish state, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but we, uh, I don't think we know systematically what kind of the range of effects are, where the where the weight of the effects are, et cetera, and what different forms of denial, um, whether they might have different uh, different consequences uh, for different groups and in different ways. And so, I, I that I think is would be a particularly interesting direction for future research on genocide denial itself. Well, Jennifer, uh, I could talk to you about uh, your work uh, for a great uh, great length of time. I suspect we've probably reached the end of our time for this SAS podcast, so I wanted okay. to say thank you and uh, congratulate you again for the publication of Dark Pass, Changing the State's Story in Turkey and Japan. We really appreciate your work and your taking the time to talk to us. Thank you again for interviewing me for these questions and um, more generally, I really appreciate uh, being invited to uh, do a podcast for this series. I'm excited to have the opportunity to talk about my book. Thank you.